Welcome to the Health Leaders Podcast, the place for peer-sourced and solution-focused insights for healthcare executives, with new episodes airing every Tuesday. My name is Eric Wickland, and I'm the Technology and Innovation Editor here at Health Leaders. Today, we're talking to Rob Allen, President and CEO of Intermountain Health, a 33-hospital chain based in Salt Lake City. Rob's been at the helm at the CIO uh position for less than a year, but he's got a 27-year history with the health system, including five as chief operating officer, and he's been integral in putting Intermountain on the map for its innovative health and wellness solutions. Hello, Rob. Hello, Eric. Thanks for having me with you today. No problem. It's a pleasure having you on this podcast. Um, let's let's get right into this now. I've, uh, tell me a little bit about Intermountain's innovation strategy and, and how it's evolved, especially since the pandemic. Yeah, you know, to talk about innovation Intermountain, you have to go back to our roots when the organization was formed in 1975. And as the story goes, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time had 15 hospitals that they decided to gift to the community and did so through the formation of Intermountain Health. And with that gift was given the charge to be a model health system. And so I think innovation really started there with this charge as to how do you be a model? And as we've over the years focused on that, it's driven a lot of changes and innovation, starting with some of the early electronic health records. Uh, a homegrown system called the Help System was one of the first in the country in the early 70s or in the mid 70s, I should say. And um, just those types of things that have always pushed the organization to try and find new ways and, and new things. You mentioned the pandemic, and that opened a lot of doors for all of us, both from the drive to innovate and find new models of care, given the realities we faced, coupled with the experience we had, that we could move fast in innovation as an organization. And uh, we've taken our telehealth work and tried to really move that forward. We've really tried to innovate around these concepts of value-based care, and how do we move forward that concept through partnerships and other things, but very specifically around how do you bring tools to bear so that physicians actually can manage patients that are in this at-risk pool, as you talk about it. You know, if you're getting the insurance dollar, managing that is a different process than the historical practice that functions for fee-for-service. And so we've got tools and have innovated a new company called Castell that works with our physicians and affiliate physicians that are part of that journey to take care of value-based care patients. And those are just some examples uh, as we go and much more I'm sure we'll get into here, Eric. Yeah. Uh, do you see strategies different for uh, value? Uh, well, let, let's let's start with value-based care. I mean, that's that's a very popular term right now. How do you define value-based care? <laughs> that's a great question, and it is a popular term. And I will say that I think we too often define it as a payment mechanism. And I think if that's all you define it as, I think you're wrong. And I don't think it actually will bear the fruit we hope it does. I think of value-based care first in the context of what value for whom, and really thinking about how you create value along the way. And to me, value-based care is as much about alignment as it is about payment mechanisms. Now, the payment mechanisms, candidly and importantly, allow you to do different things to keep people healthy. It really is a way to go upstream, which in the fee-for-service world, you can't. You don't get paid for that, and therefore, you don't have the resource to go keep people healthy a lot of times. You're just taking care of them when they're sick. But in the value chain, the payment allows you to go upstream. But as you look to go upstream, you really have to stop and ask the question, you know, who are we trying to benefit in this? And if you think of the patient, which should be at the center of all we do in healthcare, you know, how does the patient's needs align with the clinician who's working hands-on to meet those needs? 
how does the clinician's needs align with the system? In our case, you know, Intermountain Health, supporting that process and, and providing a backbone structure for that work to be done. How does that align with the payers when you think about insurance or the government or um, who is paying and what do they need to be that processor of access uh, in this journey, right? Even if you transfer the risk to the health system, there's still a component there with the payer that's really important. And how does that go to who's buying it? Be it the employer, be it the government, be it the um, patient themselves. And it comes full circle. And the more we can create alignment around those needs across that circle, the more effective we can be in actually being a partner and helping people in their health journey. And I think that's a critical part of how we need to frame and how we at Intermountain frame the work around value-based care. Hmm. Now, let's let's translate this into some specific programs that, that you feel are really innovative, uh, something, some new technologies or strategies. I, I understand it doesn't necessarily have to be a technology that's innovative. Yeah. Um, that Intermountain's doing now to 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 kind of define value-based care. Yeah, I'll, Eric, I'm going to defer the technology point for just a moment. Um, I'll come back to that. But when you think about the approaches and innovative approaches to this, it really caused us to stop and think about how do we think about patients' needs? And just think of a, a traditional physician practice. And success is often measured by how many of the slots on the schedule are filled, you know, how many patients are sitting in the waiting room waiting for the next uh, opportunity to go into an exam room. And and when you move to a value-based structure, you change the entire question from how do you get people in the office to who needs to be seen today? And do they need to be seen by the doctor? Do they need to be seen by the nurse? Can they be uh, taken care of with a video call or a direct phone call um, or just a a text Uh, chat with them and really meeting them where they are. And when you stop and reframe that, it changes the whole dynamic of a physician clinic and how it operates every day. And we, when we started this journey, um, took a handful of clinics and moved them into this value model and changed all the patients so that the doctors were managing a group of high-risk patients that were all in the value structure. And it really was interesting to see how that evolved. And those innovations in that initial uh, group for us cut down dramatically the ER visits, the hospitalizations, the readmissions, and overall saved about 20% in the cost of healthcare. And so you start to think about how do you innovate in process and how do you innovate in concept? And one of the things that I think is an innovative concept, which is really kind of fascinating when you think about what we stand for as health organizations, is really what is the competition or who is the competition? And historically, we've looked a lot at, you know, our traditional competitors down the street with telehealth and, you know, technology coming to bear. It's now stretching across the country. Um, and yet at the core, isn't our true competition disease? And how do we then bring to bear our focus around disease, beating disease, keeping people healthy? And so I think the innovative thought starts to drive that. And then you start to go to tools. Eric, which I told you I'd come back to. And I'll go back to Castell as a reference. Castell's a company we stood up for the purpose of being our population health management company and supporting physicians. And how do you start to bring through your tools, even the data that you need real time to take care of patients? How do you case manage them in a productive way, meeting people where they are? And how do you give physicians the information to answer the question, who needs to be seen today and in what format? And I think that's a critical part of innovation in, in healthcare world that uh, we're excited to be on the journey of and continuing to develop. And then you start to look at the tools and technologies available to us. And in the pandemic, you know, just the proliferation of telehealth. 
allowed us all to get more comfortable. You and I are talking through video chat today, right? And we've gotten, at least I have gotten much more comfortable today than I was when the pandemic started with these mechanisms of connection. Very That's true. True with patience as well, right? That these technologies allow us to connect with them. It's allowing us to go to the home and hospitalize patients in their home for certain things that, you know, just a couple of years ago, and even today in many cases still happen in the hospital. And yet we know patients heal better, they're happier, they progress uh, more in their own home environment where they're more comfortable. And so thinking about how do you change the setting? How do you get people where they, they need to get their care best along the way? And technology is playing critical roles and will continue uh, in that. And then you start to go in the world of AI and all of those things that are quite fascinating, right? Yes, uh, AI seems to be at the head of every single news release I'm seeing <laughs> these days, especially with health right around the corner. That's it, it's it's all the talk now. Uh, a lot of the conversation we you you focused on is the idea of, of, of meeting patients where they are instead of waiting for the patient to come to the hospital or the clinic. Are you seeing a change in how hospitals are seen are are designed or used now and clinics? And will we see a general change in what the what it means to go to a hospital now or a clinic or a doctor's office? Yeah, absolutely. I think we will see big changes on the horizon and we're seeing it happen. And if you look back, it's interesting, you know, a lot of changes already happened. You think just simply of how long patients are hospitalized for, you know, a heart surgery patient that used to, you know, be in the hospital for weeks now goes home in, uh, you know, days, sometimes hours after surgery um, and we'll continue to see a movement of these acute services into less acute settings if i can uh, use those terms that way um, the proliferation of ascs of you know other imaging sites easy access easy use lower cost sites i think is a journey that we all need to be on and when we think about what the drivers are for that technology is a facilitator but the drivers are the realities of the financing mechanisms of healthcare and the consumer choice where consumers are more and more used to a service-minded mentality that's different than this structured experience around experts and expertise in a hospital. And we're going to continue to be forced in many ways in healthcare to look at how that transitions. And how do we facilitate that? And early movers, I think, are going to be the winners on this front where we can move those out. And I'll give you some examples. I'll go back to value-based care. We launched a company called Teleca Imaging. And uh, our goal is to have 25 of these imaging centers stood up here in uh, the not-too-distant future. But so far, we have seven that are stood up. And they only do CT and MR. And there are flat rates. So in Utah, you need a CT, it's $350. You need an MRI, it's $550, period. And uh, we target those around our value-based care patients or our cash pay patients as well. And as those stood up, you start to say, what's the value equation? You know, in this process of change and this push, some payers want in, to be in these, you know, standalone imaging centers rather than hospital-based imaging centers. And in that scenario, we have an offering now. But the real value piece, when you step back and look and, and ask that question or start to answer the question of what value for whom, you really start to think, is it the patient? Well, what's the patient getting out of this, right? And I'll tell you in these centers, the seven we've had stood up and most have been less than a year in operations, $4.4 million out of pocket savings for patients. Well, how about the insurer who's needing to find a better way to manage the cost for the employer that's buying services from them? Well, our own insurance company, we've saved uh, coming up on $6 million, right? And then we have other payers that have saved as well. Well. 
from the patient side, go back to ease of access is something that's wanted. These are built in strip malls. You drive right up virtually to the front door. You know, you take 10 steps from your car, you're inside, uh, you know, signing the paper so you can go have your exam and then you're done and back out to your car. Much easier than navigating a hospital campus. And then are patients satisfied? Do they like it? Is this an experience they want? Well, on Google reviews, we're getting, you know, 4.8 uh, level scores out of patients, 4.9 and out of five point scale. So it really starts to look at this is an alignment issue for us that we're seeing the benefit coming to all the players in the right ways. And we'll continue to innovate around these new concepts. And you think of surgeries, and it's projected over 60% of what's done in hospitals today in coming years will be done in these outpatient settings, ASCs, et cetera. And so there's going to be a lot of pushes for that. And it's going to be the financing realities, and it's going to be the consumer side of it. And then you say, can we really make a difference on the finance side, Eric? And, and let me share a couple of stats with you. It's projected that 25% of the $4.4 trillion we spent last year on healthcare is avoidable, that it's administrative process, administrative function that like isn't needed in many ways. Now, on top of that, 27% of that $4.4 trillion was spent on things that are preventable. Now, Eric, I'll tell you personally, I don't always make the best health choices sitting here with my Diet Coke in hand as I'm talking to you. Um, but I do believe most people really do want to be healthy and feel good in their journey in life. And so we, we tend to make good choices, maybe not always the best, but in that interest to move forward, if we knew ways, if we had a partner who could help us make the best choices, we would make them more often than not. And that would reduce a lot of that non-necessary spend that's going for real needs, but real needs because we didn't prevent it when we could have. And those two things, over 52% of our spend. Eric, you know, a trillion is such a big number, I have a hard time grasping it. But what does that really mean? And innovation is the way we actually tackle this beast of a healthcare budget. And let me share a perspective that might help. It certainly has helped me since I've heard this. Let's just think of it in seconds and think of every second as a dollar. If you got a dollar every second handed to you, in 12 days, you'd have a million dollars. It would take 12 days of seconds to get a million dollars. If you want to get to a trillion, it would take 32,000 years. So that's the magnitude we're talking about. And when we talk about how much of that we can actually save and bring back into the economy in different ways, benefiting the patients, the employers, benefiting the health system's ability to invest in technology, we have a real opportunity today to continue innovation, to change the model and truly make a difference in all these issues that our communities are telling us they need from us. Um, nice. What are the biggest challenges or the barriers to advancing your innovation strategy? Yeah. So for, first, I would say with the um, example I gave of 52 percent, potentially, a lot of people immediately say, yeah, some of it's regulatory required. You really can't capture it, Rob. You're going to keep drinking Diet Coke. So we're not going to get all that preventable. That may all be true. But even if it's true, you take just a portion of those numbers and they are still huge and they really are meaningful in our journey. I think our barriers come down to, number one, you know, change is hard. So we do what we do because it's worked. And we continue to try and do it even when the environment's shifting and it may not work. And so we have to be pushed sometimes into this. I think it's also a challenge to figure out how to deploy the tools. And we're here talking about innovation. So let's go right to the innovation tools and AI as an example, which I think has remarkable promise. But we also know that there's risk with it and that risk can be very real and that we've got to have guardrails. So how do we speed up the process 
of understanding those tools and putting them to play in a guarded way and continue to expand them. And I think as we move forward with that, that's a challenge. Now, the biggest challenge I see, Eric, is we're talking about our ability to invest in these to make a difference long term. Healthcare is an arena where we have not successfully turned investments in technology into true efficiencies and productivity gains. And we have to figure out how to change that to a normal, you know, product cycle curve where, yes, you have an investment, but over time it gets cheaper and cheaper to use that uh, product and tool. And in healthcare, we've not gotten there. It's unfortunate. But uh, I've heard it quoted that healthcare is one of three industries that has never been able to gain productivity value out of investing in new technologies. The other two, by the way, are education and government. I don't know if that's accurate, but it seems directionally right to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a challenge right now in this economy. I mean, so many hospitals and health systems are struggling the, to, to find the money to invest or to them find the money to devote to innovation is, is, is a real challenge. Well, and to put that in context, Eric, which your stats, I'm sure you're already aware of, but last year, the worst financial re- year on record for hospitals and health systems and, you know, 75% of not-for-profit systems reportedly lost money last year. And so that is a real hurdle for us, right? How do we deploy the right resource now to solve the problems for later? Now, you're a, you're a big proponent of partnerships, collaborations. Um, a, a, a while ago, you, you know, there was a, you touched upon the idea of, of, of competition and uh, who are we competing with? Are you competing with the health system down the street? Amazon, uh, Costco, even now, yeah. uh, Google. Um, do you see those as competitors or collaborators? And, and you know, what are some of the big collaborations now that that are that are helping you to to, to move forward? Yeah, I, it's an interesting question, and we'll still compete with all of those, right? So on some level, they are competitors. But if you really define competition as your primary, or I mean, uh, disease as your primary competition then it opens all kinds of channels for partnerships that before we weren't willing to go down because of the fear of connecting with comp- competitors in a way that may you know be not beneficial to us as an organization in the future i think we've got to look at our traditional competitors often as potential partners and one great example for us is our uh, new partnership in colorado on the front range with uc health and um, we've looked as we merged with scl health at how we bring value-based care to each market that we're in. And when we look at the front range, there's a lot of opportunity there for value-based care to evolve and to expand in that market. And uh, we had an opportunity with UC Health to look at how do we provide a coverage network and how do we come together to create a platform through a clinically integrated network where we could connect physicians in this network to function under a value-based care approach. And it was really a a marriage in some regards to that partnership that just makes so much sense from every angle. The geographic footprint is a really nice overlay that creates a better web of services across that uh, metro area. And it brought together um, this opportunity to bring an insurance to town who would focus on value-based care, that being Select Health, Intermountains Insurance through the partnership there, and bringing actually the Castell tools that we talked about earlier into this clinically integrated network. And we're excited about where that will go. It's a journey and uh, we're launching, we're selling product here this fall and effective January 1 should have patients in the network um, as we're moving forward. And that's just one way. But as I talk about that circle of alignment in value-based care, I do believe partnerships are critical. We can't do everything for everybody. We can partner with other players who are strong in areas we may have gaps and together serve a broader population better through those partnerships. 
Now, what about some of the disruptors we're seeing? Uh, you know, do you see Intermountain partnering with the Microsofts, the Googles, the Amazons, um, particularly with the with the way AI is developing now, or or some of these other new uh, technologies? I do actually. We need to for those technology points, right? And <laughs> it's not an expertise I have at all. And even my best uh, IT folks, you know, this is new to the world, so it's certainly mm -hmm. new to them. And uh, we need to partner with folks along that way. One of the challenges with partnering that we have to look at as well, Eric, is when you go in with a partner, you may have different drivers. So how aligned are you to start? And that's going to be critical to your ability to get both of you where you need to go. And then the second question that often comes up, especially in not-for-profit, what, what are the exit strategies? You know, in uh, all these startup companies, there's usually an exit strategy. People are going through, you know, there's a public strategy for many of them. There's an exit strategy. Um, we need to make sure that what we're building is sustainable over time. And so when we vet partners, that's one of the critical questions is what happens if we're not for profit? We have no exit strategy. We're here to serve mission in perpetuity. They may be a for-profit who has life cycle points in that journey. What happens at one of those life cycle points and how do we position it so that we can continue our work forward when maybe they have a change, change of ownership, change of strategy? And uh, I think those are some of the hard hurdles we have to make sure we're addressing on the front end. Well, we're hitting a little bit past 20 minutes on this, which is yeah, for podcasts is great. For the conversation we're having, we could do this all day, really. Um, as, as as we kind of close this one up, you know, what what are the big things on the horizon for Intermountain that uh, that have got you know, they've got you really excited about healthcare right now? Yeah, Eric, I'm really excited about simplifying. And we talked a lot of technology, but I believe the technology is an avenue to simplify the work for our caregivers. We said at a time when we can't hire enough nurses, we cannot hire enough doctors. Here's a stat that worries me a lot. If I got every medical school resident graduate in my seven state region to work for Intermountain Health over the coming five years, I would not have enough doctors to, to fill the growth need for growing population, the retirement need for retiring practitioners, and we're not going to have enough people in the model we have today. Technology will help us. We have to simplify the jobs so they're doable, and we have to simplify the experience for those we're serving. You know, the journey for patients is complex. It blows my mind that two-thirds of Americans believe that we intentionally designed the system to be confusing. <laughs> I mean, let that sink in. Two-thirds of Americans think that in our jobs, we sit around and try and figure out how to make this more confusing for you. And uh, that's a sad statement of affairs for all of us. We've got to fix that. So I think that the key in the future we're going to focus on, which will draw technology in, which will have lots of innovative components, is how do we simplify for both the caregiver and the patient. An easy concept, but that's at the base of <laughs> everything innovative right now, really. And, yeah. and I can attest to it and just trying to reschedule an eye doctor appointment. It's <laughs> it's, a, it's a challenge. All right, well, Rob, thank you very much. This, is, this has been a fascinating discussion. Again, all too short. We could certainly talk innovation for a long time here, but I, I really appreciate you, you coming on board today. My pleasure, Eric. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you, you too. Um, and thank you for listening to the Health Leaders Podcast. We will be back next Tuesday with more healthcare industry insights.